We read together to remind us of where we are going. That is towards Jesus. Allowing the scriptures, the Holy Spirit, and the family of God to form a fidelity of allegiance to him alone. Please read aloud with me as we confess this together. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, he is worshiped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy, global, and apostolic church. We believe in the forgiveness of sins proclaimed in water baptism. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Well, good morning. Welcome to Faith Church. My name is Matthew. If we haven't had a chance to meet yet, one of the pastors here. Uh, join me, if you would, in Scripture in Matthew chapter 5. Uh, if you don't have a printed copy of Scripture with you and you want to follow along digitally, you can pull out your smartphone um, and snag a picture of the QR code on the screen and uh, give you a spot and opportunity to follow along with us today. We are a church that is committed to God's Word. We believe the truth of the Bible is for us today, and we believe that the Bible is to be our authority in our life to where our lives submit to the word rather than us taking the word and changing it to submit to our lives. Uh, we believe that we are to, to follow the word of God and allow it to have prominence in our life. And so we open the scriptures, we read them together and we study them and we dialogue and we allow them to speak to us. This is also why we do things like Alpha Youth Connect, which starts tomorrow. If you have a high schooler, college age student that you know, they need to get signed up and join uh, for these next few weeks, a part of um, this study where uh, it, it is, uh, many of you might, might be wondering this, this is our approach to youth ministry here at Faith Church. I believe that youth need to learn in circles of connections and conversation, circling up with adults who care about them and can speak truth to them, rather than creating an entertaining experience where they just sit in rows and hear a lecture. And so we want to get them engaged and develop and meet with other people and have other adults look them in the eye and speak life to them and point them in the way of Jesus. And this is an opportunity for them to do that this summer so you can get them signed up. Are you in Matthew chapter 5 yet? Hey, we've been walking through this gospel and uh, Jesus has been teaching one of his famous sermons. And he's laid out, starting in the uh, beginning of chapter 5, a new way to be human where he says, I've got a picture for human flourishing. It's this blessed, joyful, fully satisfied, abiding life. And then he says, in this life, in this life you're, you're going to be salt and you're going to be light. There's going to be a difference. And immediately he begins to tell us what it looks like to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And he says things like, hey, don't murder each other. Like, like that's not all right. In fact, he talks about not just murdering, but like getting angry. And then he talks about lust and how lust destroys and perverts your real love. And then he goes on to talk about the importance of marriage and vows and how everything in relationships is built on this covenant together, pointing to a picture of who Jesus is. And, and he's like, this is what it means to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. 
Today we are coming kind of to a, a, a wrap-up point of some of these hard-hitting subjects, if you will, to where uh, as we've been reading these over the last few weeks, you, you've probably experienced this. We're hearing the truth. We're hearing these things that Jesus is talking about, and we're like, yeah, but what about? And we're, it's coming up against our own human perspective. It's coming up against maybe even our own experiences. It's coming up against how we feel about some of these subjects and topics. And today's is not really any different. Jesus is coming at us and saying, this kingdom of God is totally different than what you've been seeing and seen in operation in your world. And it will take faith to walk in the ways of Jesus. Today, as we're talking about this subject of revenge and violence and dealing with people who are enemies and antagonistic against us, it will take faith to live the way of Jesus. It will take faith to follow Jesus into this way of living that he's presenting for us. It will rub you as an American the wrong way. It will rub you against all the things, and you're going to be like, yeah, but what about? And my, my request is that before you say, yeah, what about? Your next statement ought to be, what does the Bible say else about that? Not, not what do I feel about this, but what does the Bible say about this? We allow God's word to be the authority that we all say, yeah, no, the Bible should have authority in our lives. Until we don't like it. So let's just go to God's word with a, a sense of humility and an openness today. Amen? All right, here's what it says. You have heard that the law says the punishment must match the injury. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say, do not resist an evil person. That is most literally translated, do not use violence resisting an evil person. If someone slaps you on the cheek, oh, offer the other cheek also. If you are sued in court and your shirt is taken from you, ah, oh, give them your coat too. If a soldier demands that you carry his gear for a mile, oh, just carry it two miles instead. Give to those who ask, and do not turn away from those who want to borrow. Let's pray. Jesus, these are your words. We want to believe them and obey them. Amen. Jesus is warning us in this passage about unresolved resentment can often lead us to trying to exact revenge. The resentment that we feel when we get angered about something, if we don't deal with that anger, it will lead us to want to take revenge in some way. And Jesus is warning us, taking revenge is not the way of the people of God. It's not the way of the kingdom. Jesus is teaching us about equitable justice and repayment. He is not teaching us about revengeful escalation. In other words, Jesus is reminding us that it is okay for equitable ju justice to occur. But it is not okay for you to escalate for the purpose of your own revenge and self-satisfaction. And he's contrasting these two. The New Bible Commentary says it like this, that Jesus is calling us instead for an unselfish attitude which not only refuses to retaliate, but to not even resist. Even when, don't miss this, it would be legally right to do so. Such an attitude is one which subordinates one's own rights to the benefit of others. That's what Jesus is teaching us is the way of the kingdom. Just because it's legally right to do so doesn't mean it's the right way of the kingdom of God to do so. Just because it's legally right to do something doesn't mean it's the way of Jesus. 
it might become legally right for some particular herb that you could legally gain access to, roll it and light it up and enjoy recreationally, that may be legally right one day. But just because something is legally right doesn't mean it's beneficial or right for the people of God to walk in. Got awful quiet. I'm just saying, the way of Jesus is not always the legal way of permission within the world in which we live. It may be normal in our society to do certain things. That doesn't mean it's normal for the people of God to abide in that way. We are serving a king and a kingdom that is different has different value systems and ways of doing things that lead us to a life of flourishing, not a life that flounders around in our society. The New Testament, in this scripture, Jesus is talking about being nonviolent in our response to violence, being nonviolent in response to antagonism. And the New Testament largely points us towards a nonviolent posture and a nonviolent personal response in our life. Unless you think I'm making this up, allow me to give you about 27 bullet points. Are you ready? Here we go. Ephesians chapter 6 says we don't battle with flesh and blood, humans, but rather it's principalities and powers, and we aggressively go at that in prayer. 2 Corinthians 10 says the weapons of our warfare are not glocks and ammo, but are, are not carnal weapons, but they are mighty in God to pulling down spiritual strongholds. Some of y'all are chuckling because you're like, oh no, oh no, oh no. I know how to tiptoe through landmines. If we have learned anything in the last five weeks, I am quite nimble at helping us orient our minds back to Jesus for a minute. I'm going to keep going, Greg. Okay. Bless those. Romans 12, Romans 13, Romans 14 says things like this. Bless those who persecute you. Bless them and them. Those are the four-letter words that you say about people. Wishing harm on people that do harm to you. Okay, I'm just trying to make sure we understand what that meant. Do not repay anyone evil with evil. Never avenge yourselves. If your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. Overcome evil with good. When reviled, we bless. We pers- when persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we speak kindly. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Let your gentleness be known to everyone. Philippians 4 verse 5. See that none of you repays evil for evil, but always seeks to do good to one another and to all. 1 Thessalonians 5.15. Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. 1 Peter chapter 2. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless them. 1 Peter chapter 3. Strive for peace with everyone, Hebrews 12, 14. The author of Hebrews commends believers for joyfully accepting the plundering of their property since you knew that you yourselves have better possessions and an abiding one forever, Hebrews chapter 10. Dr. Preston Sprinkle has some commentary in his book, and I've summarized some of his thoughts about this subject of nonviolence in response to things that occur in our lives. This is what he says. But the kingdom of God is not commanded to make the kingdom of Rome more moral. Interestingly, whenever Jesus was lured into political debates, he always transformed these kingdom of the world questions into kingdom of God questions and turned them back to his audience. Jesus directly and intentionally demilitarized the meaning of Messiah and kingdom. 
That's because our mission is not to solve all the world's problems, but to embody and proclaim the kingdom of God as the place where those problems are solved. Seeing military strength as the hope of the world is an affront to God's rule over the world, and it can become idolatry, he says. Viewed from one angle, Jesus' entire ministry of peace was a colossal failure. But the resurrection changed everything. And the resurrection changed everything for us. We no longer view the world through the dim mist of justice and reward, but through the bright lens of resurrection, where suffering leads to glory and slaughtered lambs rule the earth. He's talking about Jesus. Therefore, even if we fail to bring down dictators... Our rock-solid hope is that God will take care of dictators in his own way, and he will carry out perfect vengeance in the end. God can use human agents to carry out his wrath on evil even today. It's true. Read Romans 13, 4. But nowhere in the New Testament does God use the church to be that agent of wrath. We are commanded unequivocally to love our enemies and trust that God will judge the wicked in his own timing. Perhaps this is why we need to read John's vision about what's really going on from God's perspective in the book of Revelation to correct our own self-serving Western mindset that says, I will defend my rights at all costs. Instead, I need to be willing to follow the slaughtered lamb wherever he goes so that I can reign with him in victory in eternity. Friends, in this passage that we read, Jesus is primarily addressing a personal response to evil, not a public policy to evil. There are some tensions that occur in this passage, and there are some tensions as we think about nonviolent responses. There's some tensions that, that rise on the inside of us, like, like what's the difference? Well, what about capital punishment? What about anti-abortion and being pro-life? What, what about murder? Is that the same as a justice sentence? There are tensions that come in us, like, like what about war, though? And we have questions like, is it okay for Christians to serve in the military? Is it okay then for, for Christians to be a part of the police force where they would have to carry arms and perhaps execute protection in a way that would take enough? What about all of these things? And these are tensions that are real and are probably starting to rise within you as I've been talking so far. We have to keep in mind that Jesus is addressing our personal response. He's not necessarily making statements as it relates to nations and states, as it relates to public policy. There is a real tension within us where we need to see what God talks about in, in certain realities without making it out to be something else. But make no mistake, friends, Jesus is still coming for your heart. He's still talking in such a way that pierces your heart to where if you are prone to anger, if you are prone to quick retaliation, if you are prone to violence, if you are prone to force, if you are prone to just nuke them all real fast and let's just show them how strong we are as a first initial response to devastation in our world, he's coming at your heart today. He's coming at our heart today. We have to be careful that our lust for blood doesn't pollute our love. And he's coming for our hearts. You might be sitting there thinking, yeah, well, pastor, what about all of the violence in the Old Testament and the wars and the slaughtering? What about that? What about that? Well, I'm going to answer that question in my summer study coming up in a couple weeks. How not to read the Bible? You should sign up. I will answer that question in full then. Jesus, you really want to know, let's open the Bible and let's go. Jesus is referencing passages like in Exodus chapter 21, Exodus chapter 22, Exodus chapter 23, and Leviticus 19, 
which lay out judicial responses that are meant to level the playing field. I want to read some quotes from Dr. Randall Smith on a course that I took on, of his uh, on the book of Exodus where he talks about this very thing. And he eloquently and I think accurately acknowledges the tension between Christian nonviolence, which is supposed to be our personal response, and a public or national response to certain things, including things like what about capital punishment, which is largely introduced in the Old Testament. He says this, as we seek to understand the standards of God in relationship to the Israelites and then apply those same principles and timeless truths to our lives, he goes, I am not arguing for the modern political positions of, and posturing that often accompany these verses that we've read. At the same time, I am concerned about sloppy hermeneutics, using the Bible in inappropriate ways. We often hear people say things in support of the idea that the Bible was not singular in regard to capital punishment or that the New Testament reverses the Torah and spoke against such actions. Let's take a moment while we are here and look at some of these off-the-mark ideas that circulate in our world. First, some argue that the Bible truly supports a quote-unquote thou shalt not kill, Exodus 20, verse 13, standard. Though that is true... It is not applicable to judicial execution. It is not relating to war nor public defense. It is referencing murder. It's talking about one individual murdering another person, which is why several verses earlier in our study in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, you've heard it said don't murder, but I'm telling you, don't even get angry. Because when you get mad enough, you're going to do something crazy. Second, some argue that Jesus stood up against the execution of the adulterous woman in the temple court as recorded in John chapter 8. Some of you Bible scholars might have already been here, already thinking about this. What about that? See, if you study that passage, though, Jesus did not stand against the execution of the judgment that is required by law. He instead was standing against the illegal one-sided penalty that was about to incur. Why? Because the woman was not to be executed if the man also committed the offense was let go. Jesus was standing up for inequality. Where the man was being permitted to go, but the woman was going to be punished for the same act. That's an injustice. And Jesus said, nah, dog, that ain't going to fly anymore. <laughs> Third, we see Stephen being martyred via stoning for his testimony of Jesus, an unjust reading of the law. And the disciples were not there picketing nor rallying with signs protesting the stoning. You know what they were doing? Praying. Because the weapons of their warfare are not carnal, but they are mighty in God to pull down strongholds, 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Fourth, some have been trained to see the standard here in Matthew chapter 5 as a national standard as well as an individual standard. But the statement against personal revenge, interpretation of the law of balances, which is the eye for an eye, tooth for the tooth, let the punishment fit the crime, not escalated or distorted, that law of balance, is Jesus in this passage is correcting a carrying of judicial standards meant to lessen inequality in government and turn them into personal opportunities for revenge, which is what they were doing. The religious leaders were taking this statement of the law and judicial punishment and turning it against um, for their own revenge purposes. They were using their power and privilege to get away with their own sin while condemning others who couldn't stand up and fight for themselves. It was an imbalance in justice that Jesus was not happy with. But this idea of taking a standard of judicial government that restrains it and turns it into a standards of revenge, which was wrong. His, argument, his arguments bore little on the idea of capital punishment, if at all. Individual followers of Jesus are obliged to learn to forgive. 
even in the cases where others committed criminal acts against them. But that does not oblige the state to forgive apart from their justice system. Nor does the passage anticipate a nation forgiving another nation's army violating of its soil or its citizens. If states were held to this idea of personal forgiveness, parking tickets would violate the idea of the, if the person sought forgiveness. In other words, we would not have any consequence to any violation of any laws if that's how we were supposed to read this passage. Because we weren't meant to read this passage in the context of nations and civic judgments and governments. We were meant to read this passage as people trying to follow Jesus who have a tendency to get ticked off when people treat us wrong. And that's what Jesus is coming at for our personal response. Friends, we live in times where many other issues could be considered in our court systems. Penalties levied by the state may, must find a way back to basic justice, for they are often unfairly enacted against the poor and minorities. We must work for justice to occur within our system that is not lopsided nor inequitable toward groups of people. That should be rectified for justice to be real indeed. But the death penalty standard was clearly offered by God to his people as a basic civil code and never rescinded in the later scriptures. As, an, as unfair as it seems, the principle still remains. Without punishments that fit the crime, we don't have justice in a civil society. And many of the laws that God gave Israel in the Old Testament, Jesus did not abolish or redo. He helped us personally apply them principled in our lives but the the standard in the nation of the justice system was still set in motion because justice still matters to god and where there is no consequence people cast off restraint and evil runs rampant and that's not of god either and there's a balance to this and a tension that we feel friends where the world wants us to escalate in our response Jesus comes and offers us some creative ways in which we can find kind and loving ways to diffuse the, the scene in our lives. We don't want to retaliate or escalate, but we want to respond in a diffusing manner, not in defiance, but in an attempt to diffuse the situation personally. Jesus is not advocating for removing all boundaries, having no courage, and being someone's doormat. That's not what Jesus is saying either. Jesus is not saying justice should not be served because in the case of criminal injustice, justice does need to be satisfied. Jesus will deal with their actions, but he's talking about your response to their actions. He's talking about your heart and your response. Where we cannot diffuse the scene of evil done to us, Jesus says, then the next thing is to choose to walk the way of suffering. Jesus, again, is after a heart of surrender, which often requires the people of God to choose the path of suffering. Jesus talked more about living a life with suffering than living a life of superiority. And Jesus uses some, in true Jesus fashion, some really hyperbolic and uh, parabolic kind of illustrations. He says, let's say somebody slaps you on the cheek. Oh, let's say somebody takes your cloak and sues you for it. Let's say somebody compels you to walk a mile, go ahead and walk too. And he's using these, these fun illustrations that I don't think it's without intentionality. I think Jesus is using them to point us to some things. Like, like he says, if someone slaps you on the cheek, that's a personal injury that you incur. And he's talking categorically, if you will. Jesus said, if someone slaps you on the cheek, go ahead and turn the other cheek. Now, in that culture, that was more of an insult to you than it was actual injury to you. It was an insult. It was most likely a backhanded slap, which was an act of insult. N.T. Wright says it like this, that a slap in that day implies that you were inferior, perhaps a slave, a child, or in that world, and sometimes even today, just a woman. What's the answer? 
Hitting back only keeps the evil in circulation. Offering the other cheek implies hit me again if you'd like, but now do it as an equal, not an inferior. Because it is a response that you control rather than allowing their insult to control your response. It's actually an act of self-control. Where they're trying to insult you, you choose not to return the insult. It's like this inner injury that we occur. Suffering persecution and suffering in and of itself is often experienced internally. When we choose not to retaliate for the insult that came from another, you take away their power when you choose not to respond with an insult yourself. Don't let someone else's insult make you feel inferior. Choose to forgive and kill them with some kindness. And take evil out of the circulation of the moment. And now you have de-escalated the scene. That is what Jesus is teaching us. He says then, let's say somebody sues you for your coat. This is not just a personal injury. Now we're talking about possessions that are being taken from us. I, he says, try to find a, a creative solution for that. They sue you for your, your, your outer coat. Go ahead and give them your cloak too. Now, in case you can't pick up on the humor of this moment, allow me to help articulate this. Likely in that day, you had sandals on your feet, a cloak that you wore, and a coat over it. And that's all. If they sue you for your coat, they get your coat and then go ahead and take off the garment and just stand there with your sandals on. Why, hello. You can have it all. Anything else that I can get you, sir? Jesus is painting a humorous picture for us. When someone tries to steal, just choose to be generous instead. I've heard of a church in North Carolina several years ago. They had a trailer, and they were a portable church. So every Sunday, they were using what was in the trailer to set up and hold church. Their sound system, their kids' environments, all this stuff. And their trailer got stolen. And they, they, uh, the news caught wind of it and did this report, and they, they said something really, really creative. They said, you know what? We recognize that whoever stole this probably is in a really hard place. If uh, they want to return the trailer to us, we would be happy to financially help them out of whatever situation they're in. But we would really like to hold church and not have to replace all that equipment first. We won't press charges. In fact, we'll help you out in your situation. That's an example that of, of people of God living in such a way to where they don't feel personally violated when someone takes their possessions. They find a way to turn it into an act of generosity instead. This is why... Uh, you've heard me say this in passing before, but this is why uh, when I pay my taxes, I don't actually think of it like the government is stealing my money. Now, I certainly wish they would steward it a little bit different and wouldn't take so much, that's for sure, but I made a decision a long time ago that this is just my way of being generous to our, to our, uh, to our nation. This is me making a contribution. In my heart, I treat it like I'm giving it away which has really helped me around uh, April 15th not to get really bitter and depressed. It's done a great deal in my heart. I refuse to allow highway robbery to define this moment, and instead I'm going to choose it as an act of generosity. <laughs> Friends, this, this can be really frustrating and it also can lead us to some really internal emotional problems. When somebody steals something that isn't yours, it shakes you to the core. I don't know if you've ever been robbed, but it shakes you. And internally, you're not sure what to do with that. They've stolen something that it's hard to get back. And Jesus says, if you'll, if you'll do it my way and you'll recognize that internal pain that you're feeling, that, that insecurity, that's a little bit of being persecuted and suffering. And he showed us the way in which we can live in that manner. Then he goes on to say, well, let's say they, the Roman soldier comes to you and says, hey, you, you're a Jew. Carry my bag. We're walking a mile. 
which was legally their right to do as, Romans, as Roman soldiers. They could legally, and if you refused to carry the bag, they would carry you off into jail. And Roman soldiers would abuse this and take advantage of the Jewish liberties all the time. What is Jesus talking about categorically? He's talking about government oppression in which removes your liberties. And when they come and they take your liberty and they say, carry this bag a mile, turn it into an overly generous way of serving above and beyond what they expect. And choose the heart of a servant to speak blessing on them and to carry their bag and clean it for them, organize it for them, and keep going the next mile. Knowing that if they got caught leading you that extra mile, they would get in trouble because they broke the law. And knowing that, you would simply say, no, 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 they're not making me do this. I want to do this to help them. They need to get here. I'm helping them. I'm serving them. It's totally upside down from how we think, isn't it? Jesus is teaching us in this passage the way of suffering and how to act like a servant of all. Jesus is teaching us that suffering and serving other people often inflicts deep, deep pain on the inside of us, but, but I want you to know that Jesus did it for us. I, Isaiah 53 and verse 5, I want to read it out of the New King James. It says this, it says, But he, being Jesus, was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was on him, and by his stripes we are, we are healed. Friends, this idea of feeling persecuted, this idea of when evil is done to you, our nonviolent response is one often of embracing a moment of saying, this is not what I want, and I feel like I'm in pain, and this is suffering, but this is part of the way that the people of God respond differently than the people of the world. And I need to know that this internal pain that I feel Jesus actually brings healing to. Why, 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 why? He was wounded for our transgressions. Wounds are on the outside. But he was bruised for our iniquity. Bruising is bleeding that happens on the inside. When people afflict pain on you outwardly, Jesus says, I can bring healing to that. And when people do things that's evil and it transgresses you and it cuts you to the deepest part of who you are, Jesus says, I can bring healing there too. Because he is our suffering Savior who redeemed all in every way for us. Jesus is teaching us not to retaliate with revenge, but rather to respond in love. Don't worry, they're just trying to get the piano turned on. I'm up, I'm up here, I'm up here, I'm up here. It's fine. The Holy Spirit's about to show up, and it's good, because we're going to start playing. As soon as we start playing, the Holy Spirit shows up. It's, I'm sure it's Pentecostal theology somewhere. <laughs> Jesus is teaching us not to retaliate in revenge, but to respond with love. Because he goes on in Matthew 5 and he says, you've heard that the law says love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Oh, but I say love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. In that way, you will be acting as true children of the Father in heaven. For he gives. He forgives. And for he gives of his sunlight to both the evil and the good. He sends rain down on the just and the unjust. If you love only those who love you, what reward is there for that? If you are only kind to your friends, 
how are you even different from anyone else? Heathens, pagans, people on their way to hell, they do that. Oh no, but you are to be perfect. The word perfect doesn't mean without fault. That means mature. You're to be mature, grown up, even as your father in heaven is mature. You might be sitting there thinking, how do I find love for somebody who's an enemy? Someone who is an adversary doing things antagonistically against me. How do, I, how do I love a person like that? You want to know how you love a person like that? You pray for them. You start praying for them. Not, not cursing. You start playing blessing for them. Blessing over their family. Blessing over their finances. Blessing over their life. Blessing over their health. See, prayer becomes this internal examination of our own motives. It begins to reverse the curse and allows a prayer of blessing on an enemy. See, when you begin to pray blessing on someone, you actually begin to pray the heart of God over them. Because that's God's heart towards them. He wants them to live a flourishing life too. They just aren't aware of his goodness. But you're supposed to be aware of his goodness. I'm supposed to be aware of his goodness so we can pray blessing on them. Not cursing, not sick of God, not getting, we can start praying blessing and sometimes all we can say is just like, Lord, bless them. And that's a good start. And you just keep praying blessing on them. And as God begins to reveal his heart about them, your heart for them changes and softens. And you begin to recognize that it's not your love that you're giving them. It's God's love that you've received from him. That's what you're giving to them. Friends, we need to remember that the only reason we can love others is because God loved us first. Romans says that we were once enemies of God. And that's when Jesus came to suffer on the cross while you and I were considered his enemies. When Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for them, He's talking about you. And he's talking about me. Before our eyes were open to see that he suffered for us. See, this love of God empowers us to suffer long and be kind. This love of God, 1 Corinthians 13 tells us of this love. It says love suffers long. That means when, they're evil, when, when your neighbor is mean and evil and against you, the love of God in you helps you continuing to suffer long. Yeah, but it's not right, and they should know, and I... True. Some of the reason why we don't... Um, we don't live this out very well is because we're trying to be too polite instead of being Christ-like. Well, isn't that the same thing? Well, sort of. Most of us are unwilling to acknowledge that someone is an enemy to us, but the minute we acknowledge they're an enemy to us, we're bound by the word of God to treat them with love. So if we don't ever acknowledge them as an enemy, and we're just kind of like, ah, they're just kind of annoying, we don't feel like we have to submit to the word of God that says love them and pray for them. But when we acknowledge this person seems to continually be against me, now, as followers of Jesus, we have the instructions on what we're supposed to do if we're going to be obedient to God. And, and we have a promise that says while we're loving them and we're praying for them, it might feel like we're suffering. And God says, that's actually part of the way of flourishing is to recognize that you're living like Jesus. What would Jesus do? 
he would walk the way of suffering and decide to pray for them until they could love them completely. And maybe that love would transform them from an enemy to a follower of Jesus. We're, we're called to change the world, and often it starts by choosing to walk the way of suffering and persecution and part, be partners. Romans says that when we suffer with him, loving our enemies, praying for them, then we also will get to enjoy the glory of God when it comes. It's part of the way of the kingdom, friends, to walk the way of suffering. Would you stand with me as we come to the table of the Lord today? And if you would go ahead and begin to open up the elements, if you want to participate in communion today, you are welcome to do that. It's something that we do as people of God. We come to the table. You can open it up and get the bread. Then you can flip it over and open up the juice and hold on to it. We're, we're going to get there in a minute. And we'll partake together. Friends, suffering and this idea of showing love to our enemies and not responding with revenge or violence when, man, everything in us wants to do it. I said it was the love of God that allows us to recognize love in other people, but the love of God comes as a fruit of the Spirit of God in us. Friends, today is Pentecost Sunday on the church liturgical calendar, the day that we remember that the Spirit of God was poured out in the book of Acts and the church began. And, and as a, someone who's raised in an environment where we pursued that and believed in that fully, Acts 1.8 says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you so that you can be God's witnesses. We love talking about the power of God. We think about it in terms of like dynamite power because in the Greek it's the word dunamis, but it's also the word that means dynamic. When evil is done to you, there are many dynamics in that scenario at play. And the person who is full of the spirit can still live as a witness in that space. And we think about witnesses like preaching and boldness, and I'm going to share my faith. Sometimes it just means walking the way of suffering in a way that honors Jesus. That's what a witness does. In fact, that word witness in the Greek, you're not going to like this, but it's the truth. It's the word martyr. When you receive the Spirit's fullness and He comes into your life, He empowers you to be willing to lay down your rights to serve and suffer persecution at the hands of evil people who are coming at you personally, coming after your possessions and trying to distort your liberties in a way that says, I'm going to just serve like Jesus. I'm going to lay down my life for others. The way of the kingdom is the way of the cross. And the Spirit empowers us to live that kind of a life. And that's what we're asking the Lord to do in us when we come to the table. Your body represented by the bread was broken. Your blood was poured out. Jesus, you were the suffering Savior. And I want to walk in your ways. So we receive of his love in the form of the bread and the juice so that we could embody that lifestyle for the rest of the week as people who give of our body and our life to serve others and show them the way of Jesus. Father, here we are in this moment. You're speaking something to us, Lord, in various ways. And inevitably, Lord, su subjects like this bring up so many what-ifs and questions and tensions. But, Lord, I pray that you would help us subside those for a minute. Before we try to find specific application, Lord, we would just acknowledge none of us actually like suffering. In fact, it sucks. But Jesus, that's what you modeled. 
And that's kind of what you've invited us into. So help us understand all of that, Lord. And Lord, where we don't understand it, would your love be tangibly present in us? And your love would empower us to live out that same love to the people around us who are antagonistic towards us. Lord, we thank you for it. Thank you for your body that was broken for us. As we take and eat, may we remember that truth today. Let's take the bread. And Lord, we thank you for your blood that was poured out. You gave your life so that we could have life. May we steward our life in a way that honors your witness and your testimony and the life that you've called us to. Thank you for your blood. Let's receive together. Now, Lord, I pray that you would bless us and keep us. You would make your face shine on us and be gracious to us. You lift your countenance towards us and give us your peace. We pray these things in the name of the Father who loves us, the Son who died for us. Oh, and the Holy Spirit who lives within us, we pray. And the people of God said, amen. Hey, friends and family, I hope today's message was life-giving for you. I want to ask you to take a next step and go ahead and click the subscribe button so you never miss another chance to have an encounter with God. And while you're at it, take another step and share it with a friend. Maybe post it on your social network or text a coworker the link. And when you do that, you are partnering and get to be a part of seeing faith come to life in them. Hey, if Faith Church has made an impact in your life, if these messages are helping you gain traction in your faith, would you consider partnering with us financially? When you do that, it helps us widen our reach so that more people can have an encounter with the real Jesus. You can find information and ways to give on our central hub, faithchurchks.org. If, if you live in the Southeast Kansas region, we'd love to see it in person at one of our Sunday services. You can find those times on our hub as well, faithchurchks.org. Hey, remember this, God is for you and we love you.